for uh, praying for us. We've been gone a couple weeks on vacation here, so it's uh, good to be back. Uh, looks like our power system took another hit, electrical probably. So anyway, don't have the overhead unless they get it working somehow. So, so anyway, I will uh, make do the old-fashioned way here, as we <laughs> have done for many years. But uh, also, no singing tonight. Albert's not here. I had something going, so it's me. Uh, so we are in the book of Colossians tonight, and uh, we are in chapter 2, and we want to look at verses uh, 16 through 19. Uh, warning about legalism and mysticism. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, pray, and then we'll get started here. Lord, we do thank you that we can assemble. Thank you for the, the facility you've blessed us with. We pray that we can get the sound system working sooner rather than later. But uh, we thank you for uh, your goodness. Thank you for the word of our God, which will stand forever, and uh, that we can study it together tonight. Pray that you would be with the, uh, the teen study ongoing, the moms. I uh, pray that that study in Romans would be uh, used of you in a great way tonight as well. So we commit our, our study to you now. Again, thank you for the privilege to be here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in uh, Colossians, emphasizing the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And uh, everything we need is found in Jesus. And that's, that's really what you could... That's the idea of Colossians. Don't need to look outside of Christ. Everything we need is found in Christ. Uh, in him are, all, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as it says in chapter 2, verse 3. And we are complete in him, as it says in chapter 2, verse 10. And uh, as we think about this reality, um, Gnosticism was making inroads into the early church, even, even at this time. And uh, you have a number of things addressed in the book of Colossians. Uh, he addresses philosophy in chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, love of wisdom, worldly wisdom. Uh, there's legalism that we're going to look at tonight in verses 16 and 17, 2, 16 and 17. Mysticism, 2, 18 and 19. And then there's asceticism in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. So we're going to look at all of these things as we work our way through uh, the text here. And really what you had in terms of the Colossian air, as it's called, is really a mixture of all of these things. And Gnosticism, the early forms of Gnosticism were kind of a, a mixture of all of these things. Of course, Gnostic thought uh, was we have secret insights that you don't have uh, that comes from our, our personal experience with God. Sound familiar at all? I mean, it really kind of resonates with the modern charismatic movement in a lot of ways, where I have a special insight from God, I have a special word from God because of my experience with God that you don't have. And that kind of puts me uh, up here a little bit in my spirituality. Well, uh, note here, um, let's talk about legalism for just a minute. Uh, what is legalism? You know, uh, People are really quick to throw out legalism sometime. Uh, you take a stand on biblical truth and they say, ah, oh, you're just a legalist. Is that what legalism is? No. What is legalism? Yeah. Is there a list of do's and don'ts in the New Testament? Yeah. But we wouldn't call that legalism. No, but there is in the Old Testament. Well, that's true too. And we're not under that Old Testament code. 
So if you want to put us under, that would be a form of legalism where putting us back under that Old Testament code, and we see that is involved here. In addition to that, uh, it relates to man-made rules, right? They're not, they're not in the Bible, but people come up with all kinds of man-made rules, and you're spiritual if you follow my list, and I'm watching just to make sure. That's, that's legalism. So uh, there's a difference between biblical obedience, which is good, and legalism, which is bad. And so uh, he's going to uh, hit on this a little bit as we work our way through the text here. Uh, let me read my statement here on legalism. Legalism properly understood is when people add man-made rules contrary to completion in Christ, either for salvation or sanctification. By the way, um, when we think about legalism, there's a major book in the New Testament that really the whole book is really addressing this. And what book is it other than Colossians, other than Hebrews? <laughs> it would be the book of Galatians. Galatians is really addressing legalism, which is wanting to add legalistic things to Christ, saying you need Christ, but you also got to have circumcision. You also got to follow the Jewish rules. That's, that's the idea of, of legalism. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. And I think that's what we're talking about. That's, that's really what we're talking about. Instead of just going by the new covenant scriptures, we're now wanting to bring us under other things here uh, and, and make other rules. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, Legalism, in effect, denies the sufficiency of Christ by saying you need more than Christ. You also need to keep these extra-biblical rules and regulations. Legalism says that in order to be really right with God, Christ alone is not complete. Uh, you also need to do all these other things. So that's the idea of legalism. It adds to uh, the Scriptures, adds to the, the New Covenant requirements. Okay, uh, well, let's get started here. And somebody want to read verse uh, 16? Who wants to read verse 16? Yeah, Dale? Okay, thank you. The context here, he has just emphasized what Christ has done for us at the cross. Remember back in verse 14, he talks about uh, in the... Uh, Picking it up right there at verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All the charges that the law brought against us, showing us our guilt, was nailed to the cross. All the, all the charges against us have been nailed to the cross. And so therefore, uh, he builds on that, so let no one judge you. Legalism is certainly judgmental. That's true. That's one reason people, if you're, if you're you know, saying something they don't want to hear, say, hey, oh, you're very legalistic. Uh, legalism is judgmental. Now, again, there's biblical judgment, discernment, and there's unbiblical. And really, legalism is, is uh, unbiblical judgment. Uh, that's really emphasizing man-made rules, as I say. Uh, but all these charges against us, uh, all the violations that we have of the old covenant, of all the rules, and you had 613 laws in the Old Testament, uh, 
and uh, all the breaking of those rules, that's all been nailed to the cross. We're not under that anymore. But now legalism comes along and says, I want to put you back under that. And he's saying, no, uh, no, that's been nailed to the cross. You're, you're free from that. Uh, you're not under that. Uh, you're free in Christ. So don't let anyone judge you with legalism in, in that sense. Don't let them put you back under the law. We're not saved by the law. We're not sanctified by the law. We're not more spiritual because we try to keep the law. No, we're not under that. The cross changed everything. Uh, we're under Christ now. And uh, really, the great law that governs us now is not the Mosaic law. It's the law of Christ, which is the law of love. So he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink. In food or in drink. Uh, this refers to Jewish dietary uh, restrictions. Uh, we're free from these things. I remember as a brand new Christian, uh, the church I was involved with had a little fight break out over diet. Some, some people got on board that, boy, if you're really where you ought to be with the Lord, you ought to be following a certain diet. <laughs> I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. I was a brand new Christian. It seemed pretty foolish to me. But uh, don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink. Now, there are qualifiers uh, under the new covenant. Uh, we are to be sensitive to a weaker brother, for, for example. Uh, we are not to be, you say, well, I have, uh, you know, I have the right to, to, to drink alcohol. Well, yeah, you have, you have liberty, but don't get drunk and don't be a stumbling block. Uh, and so we do have some guidelines uh, in keeping with being spirit-filled. But the point is, we are not under a legalistic code. We're not under the Mosaic code. We're not under a legalistic code. We're really under the code of love that is to govern our lives, the code of Christ. In Romans 14, 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jews put a tremendous emphasis on eating the right things, abstaining from the wrong things, eating with washed hands, all of these rules and regulations related to eating and drinking. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So again, Hebrews, writing to Hebrews, writing to Jews, says it's not good that uh, we be preoccupied with this idea of I'm spiritual because of what I eat or because of what I don't eat. So do not let anyone judge you uh, in food or in drink. Uh, you know, a good regulating principle, a good guiding principle for us in, in this regard as far as food or drink is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that should be our guiding principle. Yes. Right. So I think legalism is all mixed with the rules and mandates, rules and stuff like that. But I think it's deeper. I think it's affecting the relationships with other people. Well, it certainly does that. That's absolutely true because, again, yeah, you get the judging going on there. 
and uh, you get the, the false uh, spirituality. I'm more spiritual because I'm doing X and not Z or whatever. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It affects your whole life, your relationship with God, your relationship with everybody else. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yep. Okay. Um, well, praise the Lord. Uh, we can eat bacon, right? Uh, we can. Praise the Lord. Uh, we don't have those regulations. Back in the Old Testament, you know, those poor Jews, they could never eat bacon. I remember hearing that story about this Jewish guy went into the deli, and he, he, wanted, to, he wanted to buy some chicken. And so he says to the, the guy behind the meat counter, I, I want, that, I want that, 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 that slab of chicken right there. And, and uh, he says, that's, that's not chicken. He says, yes, it is. It's chicken. It was actually bacon. <laughs> he kept saying he wanted the chicken. Anyway, uh, we don't have those, you know, we're not under that bondage. You, you can eat whatever you want. You like eating rattlesnake? Go for it. I'll watch you. doesn't bother me. Uh, you, you have freedom to eat it. Uh, if you like eating the heart, uh, you know, of whatever. You, you can do whatever you want to do. Uh, and drink. I, I think really, honestly, sometimes uh, fundamentalists have been kind of legalistic here uh, to the point where, you know, if anybody has a glass of wine, they're in sin. Well, that's too far. You, you can't go that far as far as what the Scripture actually says. Uh, I always caution as far as danger, because even my background and my drinking problem before I got saved, and there are those warnings in Scripture, and yet, you know, the Bible is very clear that, uh, you know, it's not sinful to have a glass of wine necessarily. Now, you might, might want to be wise if you're with an alcoholic. Yeah, maybe it's not a good idea. And I always say, you know, don't, don't push it out in front of everybody, because you can be a stumbling block. But... Don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink. Uh, I think in particular he's thinking about Jewish dietary restrictions here. Or because of what he goes on to say, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, uh, the word festival is really feasts, the, the idea of feast. Uh, we're no longer under the Jewish law, which required the Jews, uh, the, the male Jews, 20 years and older, to go to three, uh, the three major feasts in Israel every year, annually, they had to go to these. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of, uh, of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. Uh, we don't do that, right? When's the last time you've been to the Feast of Tabernacles? Been a while? You know, it's just not on our radar. Uh, we don't have to do it. But if you're Jewish and you've been doing this your whole life, now it's, it's, well, we've got to continue to do this. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not what it's about. Um, or, new, or a new moon. On the first day of the month, uh, you had the, the beginning of a new month uh, on the lunar calendar. And uh, on this particular day, it was kind of a celebration. Uh, they would ha have sacrifices, special sacrifices, and uh, they would recognize that as, a, as an important time, as the beginning of a new month. And then he says, or, or Sabbaths. Now, uh, the word Sabbath means rest, right? And what day of the week what, did the Sabbath fall on? Saturday, Saturday right, Saturday. Uh, there were other Sabbaths that the Jews also observed, other days of rest. But every week it was built into their calendar, um, according to the Mosaic law, that they were to keep the seventh 
they were to rest on the, sab- on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. So as we think about this, uh, let me talk about the Sabbath for just, just a moment. The Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant with Israel under the Mosaic law. Uh, it was never given to the Gentiles, by the way. It was given to the Jews. It was not given to Gentiles. Um, but now we are under the new covenant, and we are not required uh, to keep the Sabbath. And that's what he's bringing out here. Uh, it's a sign of the old covenant uh, relationship that Israel had uh, with God, but never really applied to the Gentiles. And so uh, note that. Uh, also, as we think about the new covenant that we are under, and we look about at the New Testament scriptures related to the new covenant, how many of the uh, Ten Commandments are repeated and applied under the new covenant? Do you know? Huh? Nine. That's right. Nine of the ten. And which one's left out? Well, it would be the Sabbath, right? We are not told anywhere that, that we need to keep the Sabbath. And yet it is amazing how much uh, people get off track when it comes to the Sabbath. I mean, we've got the Seventh-day Adventists. We've got, you know, different groups, uh, Hebrew roots type people who want to bring the Sabbath back for the, for the church. And uh, I, I have a Christian friend, and, and somewhere he, he kind of gets off track once in a while, and he said, you know, we were, I'm keeping the, the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath. And he says, we're, we're guilty of violating the Sabbath. You know what I did? Uh, he had this on, on Facebook. That's what you want to do, by the way, when you start getting off track. You want to certainly go and post it somewhere. I, uh, I, simp- I didn't argue with him at all. I simply, in the footnote or in my comment, I, I said, uh, I quoted, uh, I just typed out Colossians 2.16. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he kind of changed his tune. Uh, I don't know if he didn't read this verse or what, but uh, we uh, are not under the Sabbath anymore. Don't let anyone judge you in regards to Sabbaths. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, the Friday people, right? Who are the Friday people? No. The Muslims. Friday's their big day of worship, the Muslims. That's right. Uh, then there's the Saturday people. Who are the Saturday people? The Jews. And who are the Sunday people? Christians. I mean, just in loose terms, you know, that's kind of how these people groups are described. You've got the Friday people, the Saturday people, the Sunday people. We're the Sunday people. And it's kind of interesting as you think about this, because as the Sunday people, we are under a whole new order. Uh, We're under a whole new covenant than they were in the Old Testament. And so so we're not under that that obligation anymore. All right. Um, Okay, any other thoughts as we wrap up verse 16 here? Yeah, Michael.
Boy, that's a good question. Um, I do think we always want to have some scriptural basis for our convictions. Uh, otherwise, there are convictions that are just out here in midair, so to speak. So I would want to tie it back and say, you know, here's, here's why I think the way I think uh, in, in my teaching. It's interesting, Michael, because you have young children. Now I have four grown adult children. Uh, none of them would share all of my convictions at this point anymore. And I was pretty strong on a lot of things. And honestly, I've grown in grace a lot through the years here too. But uh, you don't think so, huh? <laughs> no, I have. I, I'm, I'm a lot more gracious than I was when those kids were growing up, that's for sure. Uh, and I probably got more gracious as they went along, too. But anyway, uh, that's a great question. It maybe kind of, Michael, deal, depends on kind of what we're dealing with. I mean, if we're dealing with uh, uh, a moral issue, like, uh, related, let's say related to dress. I, we had four daughters. And we always emphasized, you know... Dress in a way that is not provocative, you know, to, to not be a stumbling block. Well, they thought we were totally, you know, out. And uh, it was always a struggle. Um, now, some of them, as you go along, they, they share our convictions, some more than others. <laughs> and, and so there's, there, is, there is leeway there where, you know, you work with it. And, um, you know... Back in the day, it was so funny, you know, going back to almost a more legalistic time, if the women didn't wear dresses, I mean, they were considered to be in sin, right? I mean, we would laugh at that today, but back in the day, that was true. So, you know, have things changed? Have morals changed? I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, That's why I think it's always good to come back to Scripture and... uh, you know, I think there are principles there as far as dressing in a certain way. And Peter would bring that out even. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I'm, am I answering it halfway? Yeah, yeah. And some of these things, there's no definitive formula when you get to that area, that, that tension you're talking about there. Oh, yeah. Yep. It, it can be hard when you're trying to manage a household and decide mm-hmm. what rules you might enforce when other families might treat you differently. And right. How to explain body uh, often. Yeah. Well, and, and then you're kind of, you know, it depends what age we're talking about, their level of comprehension. Um, and there does come a point, you know, where, I mean, they learn obedience. Children obey your parents. So they learn obedience, but then as they get older, they begin to, to reason more, and they begin to do their own thinking, especially when they become teenagers, you know, and, and uh, then they come to a point where they know, they know better, you know, for a little while there, and they come back, hopefully. <laughs> anyway, there's a whole uh, lot of things involved there. Uh, okay, well, that's good. Anyone else? Okay, let's, uh, let's go ahead and have somebody read verse 17, which kind of completes the sentence there. Somebody want to read verse 17? Yeah, Dave. Okay, very good. 
Note these things that he has just mentioned. He says, they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, this verse, verse 17, you might say that the book of Hebrews is a detailed explanation of this verse. Uh, In the law, there were all kinds of types and shadows. And they all pointed to Christ, but they weren't Christ. They were just types and shadows. Um, for example, Christ is the bread of heaven that fulfills us. He's the living water that satisfies our deepest thirst. Uh, in him, uh, we have a joyous celebration called a feast in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He is the veil by which we enter the very presence of God. And uh, he himself is our eternal salvation, rest. Uh, He is our Passover, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So we see a lot of typology related to Christ. Now, shadows are never the real thing, right? You see a shadow, it's not the real thing. But behind the shadow, there is something of substance that is real. And that's what he's talking about here. Um, Chapter 10 of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So the law was a shadow. And, uh, you know, I I remember a a guy in the church, and uh, when I went to see him, he was a single guy, and he was an older guy, and uh, he had a fiancé, and uh, he had a picture of her, a beautiful picture of, of his fiancé there. And, uh, you know, he was really quite, you know, taken by that. He loved that picture, had it in a very prominent place. But, uh, you know, one day uh, he went and he married her. And he no longer just had the picture in his place. He had the person in his place, right? He had her to have and to hold. Now, imagine one day he wakes up and he says, Uh, Honey, it's been fun, but uh, I really no longer need you. I've got your picture. I'm taking the picture, and that'll be fine. I'm just leaving with the picture. I don't need you. We'd think that guy was crazy, wouldn't we? He would be crazy. Why would we want to go back to the pictures? That's what you have in the Old Testament. You have pictures, but they weren't the substance. Now, Christ is the substance, the substance of uh, the shadows of a shadow of things to come, but the substance is, is Christ. Um, it says in Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that, that is a very clear statement. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law did serve a purpose, but the substance is of Christ. What was the purpose of the law? And, and what, does the, what purpose does the law serve today? We're not under the law, but it still serves a purpose. And what might that purpose be? Yeah, that's right. It exposes sin. I often compare it to a mirror. You know, look in the mirror and it'll show you the dirt you have on your face, but it won't cleanse you. And that's the way the law works. It does have a purpose, as we see in in 1 Timothy 1. It says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And the way you use it lawfully is really to expose sin. But it's not the answer to our sin problem. It just simply exposes sin. 
The law reveals sin, but it can never save or sanctify. In the law is revealed the very character and nature of God's holy standard. Uh, I like to say uh, the law revealed the glory of God's standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is a moral standard that is found in the law. And the law brings that to bear, showing us uh, our sinfulness. But it, uh, it doesn't save us. It doesn't solve our sin problem. The only solution is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, any other thoughts there? All right, let's go on to uh, verse 18. Who wants to read verse 18? We've talked about legalism. Now we're going to talk about mysticism. And uh, who wants to read verse 18? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, let no one cheat you of your reward is how the New King James uh, translates this. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of uh, debate on how this should be translated here. Uh, the idea of cheat seems to be disqualify. Uh, don't let anyone disqualify you of your reward. You know, you can't lose your salvation, right? Right. <laughs> but you can lose your reward, Right? That's correct. Second uh, John verse eight says, "Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward." And so, the, the one nuance here is that you could take this in the sense of, "Don't let anyone uh, cheat you or cause you to be disqualified in terms of your reward. If you follow these false teachers, they will get you off track, and you'll lose your reward." Would be the idea. So that's one possibility, but uh, <clears throat> this, word, uh, this word translated cheat here in the New King James, uh, it's the only place this word is used in the New Testament, and it relates to athletics, and uh, what compli- complicates it is that this uh, basic word is related to the word prize, uh, but it's also uh, related to the, uh, the word umpire. And so, how do we take this? Uh, Should we look at this in the sense of, don't anyone disqualify you in terms of you losing your reward? Or should we take it in the sense of, don't let anyone play umpire in your life? Uh, Let me read my note here. In context, the better sense is probably related to the idea of umpire. The idea then is don't let anyone rule against you, which would correspond to let no one judge you in verse 16. Don't let anyone make a legalistic call on you that says you are disqualified if you don't keep their legalistic rules. Paul is saying that you should not allow anyone to intimidate you in this way. The law has been done away with, so we don't need anyone playing God as umpire and making bad calls. So that, that might be the sense here, as you think about the whole context here. And then notice, he goes on to say, uh, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. Now, what is descript, being described here is, uh, is mysticism. And mysticism is really the idea of appealing to feelings or human intuition uh, by which we determine what is spiritual. 
That's always dangerous. And we got a huge movement like this in Christianity today. Like I say, I hate to pick on, but the charismatics are, are there, a, a lot of them. I mean, put the, that's the emphasis. That's not where we want to be. Gary Gilley says, The Gnostics taught that a few elite had received the gift of direct revelation through the Holy Spirit. By the way, charismatics teach that today. Uh, these moments of inspiration took place through visions, dreams, and encounters with angels. This divided the church into two classes, the haves and the have-nots, the truly spiritual and the unspiritual. The heart of modern-day mystics' problems is found in these verses. They are basing their theology on experiences rather than on the foundation of Jesus Christ as found in his word. So this verse is really up-to-date in terms of what's going on out here. Uh, the idea of, of mysticism. Now, when we uh, think about uh, this phrase here, and it all goes together, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, uh, Expositor says, in the Greek, the word for false humility and the expression worship of angels are governed by the same preposition. That is to say, the heretics probably insisted that their worship of angels rather than the supreme God was an expression of humility on their part. You see what he's saying? Uh, this idea, again, would go back kind of to Gnostic thinking. Uh, Gnostic thinking said, the supreme God is so far out there, so transcendent, that we can never really make contact with him. There's all these intermediates. There's the supreme God, and then there's a little lesser, and a little lesser, and a little lesser. And uh, so perhaps in uh, supposed humility, they said, you know, we don't put ourselves up to where we think we're making connection with that supreme God, but uh, we are worshiping the angels, the angelic realms along the way here, in the, in the intermediate uh, chain of things here that reaches ultimately to the supreme God. Well, that's a false humility because the Bible is very clear that there's only one mediator. There's not these intermediary ranks here. Uh, there's only one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, um, in terms of application, we might talk about how some people uh, pray to Mary, for example, as an intermediary. Uh, no, uh, that's a false humility. You say, well, I, you know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm good enough to, to talk to God or to come directly to God, so I go to Mary. That's humble, right? It's false humility. It's not true humility. It's not biblical humility. And that's what seems to be in view here. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people out here under the guise of uh, supposed humility that really kind of degrade the Word of God. Uh, there was a lot of these guys out here that were in the emergent movement which said, we're just not quite sure of anything. Uh, we're not quite, we don't want to be too dogmatic here. We want to be very humble as far as the creation account. We're not sure that's really to be taken literally. You know, maybe it's just kind of myth mythology. Uh, we don't want to be too dogmatic in terms of uh, homosexuality. I mean, that, that's very arrogant, you see, to take a real strong stand. So we want to take the, the humble position. And uh, we don't want to take a strong stand in terms of the role of men and women, because that really would be arrogant. We want to be very humble. 
There's a lot of false humility out here. I mean, when the Bible has spoken and is clear, we need to stand on that. And to say, well, I'm humble because I'm not willing to really take a strong stand or I'm taking another stand that is really contrary to the Scriptures, that's a false, false humility. And then he says, uh, take delight in false humility and worship of angels. Angels uh, are all around us. There may be some here tonight, as I often say. But, you know, angels really pretty much operate in an anonymous fashion, right? Uh, we don't interact with angels that we know of. I mean, they're interacting with us. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be the heirs of salvation. Uh, they're ministering on our behalf in ways that we don't know about, right? We don't say, well, thank my angel. <laughs> we're, we're, thank God for angels and thank God for how he uses them. But we don't really know what's going on with angels. Uh, they function in a, in a quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of a way. And the emphasis of Scripture is not on the angels. The emphasis of Scripture is on God himself. Well, false humility kind of puts these angels uh, uh, above where they should be. They are not to be worshipped. They are not to be prayed to. They are, we are not to be preoccupied with them. Okay. Uh, any thoughts there before I finish out this verse here? Okay, intruding into those things which he has seen. Now, it's interesting here. Uh, when it says, uh, my new King James says, intruding into those things which he has not seen, but it seems like that's, that's probably not the best uh, translation. The, the older manuscripts, they do not have the word not here. Uh, let me read my note. The better manuscripts say, which he has seen. The mystic has spiritual experiences. He may see things, that is, have visions. He throws himself around recklessly in this spiritual realm. And even though he thinks his experiences with holy angels, he does not realize that actually he is dealing with demons that transform themselves into angels of light. He thinks that he is receiving special revelation beyond what the simple folks just holding to the Bible have but in reality, such a person is deceived. And so notice, uh, he is intruding into those things which, which he has seen. He very well may be having spiritual experiences. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things out here in the name of Christianity that really there's demonic activity behind it. I, I would not say these people don't have experiences. I think that's part of the draw. There is something that's happening there. There is a spiritual experience. I wouldn't deny that these people have these visions and see things. Yeah, that's what this seems to say. Intruding into those things which he has seen. And then, uh, by the way, I was reading, you know, and uh, they were talking about how there's just an explosion of false prophets on the scene now. And I don't follow all this stuff. You could spend all your time doing this. But uh, this writer was bringing out that most all of the cults started with somebody who says, I have, a I have a secret message from God. God has revealed himself to me, and, and I have a special message that's, that's outside the scriptures. It relates to really what we would call mysticism. And then he says, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. Uh, the mystic goes by feelings and experiences, and uh, he has a real experience, and he gets a big head about it. He really thinks, boy, I, I'm something. Look, look at the experience I'm having. But notice uh, it's fleshy versus spiritual thinking. Uh, 
He has a fleshy mind, uh, which is very self-oriented. It's not God-oriented. It's not Bible-oriented. His experience is not filtered through the Word of God. Uh, He doesn't even think uh, he needs to have the Word. Um, I've had people make fun of me because, you know, I'm so strong as far as my Bible teaching, just wanting to be very manuscript-driven in that sense. It's like, you know, you don't don't have this experience. And uh, they think they need that. Well, we need biblical discernment. Uh, We can't just go by subjective feelings and experiences. And yet the mystic, he thinks he knows better he thinks he knows more, and he always has lots of stories. They live on stories. You have a lot of false teachers. All they do is tell big stories in terms of their experiences, and uh, they get into that. Just one problem. Where is Jesus in all of this? Jesus is not the authority. The mystic's experience is now the authority. This is not under the authority of Jesus. It's additional to Jesus. It says Jesus is not enough. It says I need additional revelation. I need additional insight. I need new and greater experiences in the spirit realm. And that's the emphasis with the mystic all the time. And in the process, ends up denying the sufficiency of Christ. Okay. Um, Any other thoughts? Before we come to the last verse that we're going to look at tonight. Yes, Michael. Well, amen, brother. I'm with you there. Very true. Amen. Okay. Um, Somebody want to finish out with uh, verse 19? Who wants to read 19? Mac, you want to read 19 for us? Thank you. Uh, Here's their problem. Not holding fast to the head. Here's the crux of the issue. Uh, They're not holding to Jesus. They're holding on to their experience. And in doing so, uh, putting that above Jesus, they're not holding properly to the head. Head represents what? When we think about this, not holding fast to the head. We know it's talking about Jesus. But what's the concept of head? The authority. And what do we do uh, with heads, with our heads? What goes on? What kind of activity goes on in the head? Virtually, virtually everything. But I'm really wanting to talk about thinking. 
right? The mind. He talks about the fleshy mind here uh, in the previous verse. And he's talking about, you know, in Christ are hidden all the, the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, that relates to mind activity, thoughtful activity. Uh, holding fast to the head, the one who's in charge of all the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I think we need to be really careful. Somebody comes along and says, well, I've had a vision. I've had a vision. And uh, you know these false teachers, they want to say things like, touch not the Lord's anointed. That'd be me. <laughs> and they, they have these warnings like, if you don't, this is God speaking. And you know, if all of a sudden you claim you have a message from God, uh, you know, my son-in-law Levi had an interesting experience last Sunday. He was preaching and this guy's coming up onto the, onto the uh, uh, pulpit area and he says, I have a message for the people. And Levi says, we'll talk afterwards. I have a message for the people. Levi says, we'll talk. This went on for about five minutes. Levi kept telling him, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> Finally, the security people came and, you know, they had, uh, he had, they had a message for him too. <laughs> but uh, it is amazing. He thought he was just, just had a message for the people. Well, uh, not holding fast to the head. You come and say, I've got, you say you have a message from God. You, you better have your Bible open. A.W. Tozer said, if an angel would sit on my windowsill and say, I have a message from God, I'd want to go and get my Bible and open it up and see what it had to say. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel. Let him be accursed. Not holding fast to the head. You know what happens when you're not connected to the head? You ever seen a head that's uh, a body that's disconnected from the, from the head? It's, it's not good. Yeah, chicken. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, they're dead. Uh, they know nothing. And for believers, Christ is our head. He's our authority. He's, he's the, quote-unquote, brain center, uh, the one in whom are all, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the one that guides and directs us. And we know spiritual truth through him. It's all found in him. And then he says, not holding fast to the head from whom the... From from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. When we're connected to Christ, that's the basis of our spiritual growth. Uh, that's the basis of our spiritual nourishment. We're not looking to angels. We're not looking to saints. Uh, we're holding fast to Christ. It's in that holding fast to Him that uh, the whole body is nourished. And then knit together by joints and ligaments. Uh, this is also the basis of our unity. Uh, we're all centered in Christ. He's the basis of our unity. And our growth comes when we are uh, properly holding to him and properly relating to one another. If there is to be growth, there must be life. And to have life, you must be connected to the head. And then as believers, we are to ever hold fast to the head, finding all of our spiritual needs met in him alone. And if believers are properly holding to the head, they will also be properly interacting with each other. And when everything is working right, the head is in charge, and the members of the body function according, accordingly in harmony. Um, notice he says there, it's through this that we experience growth with the increase that is from God. God does it, and he does it through 
continually being properly focused on, on Jesus Christ. Uh, all the rules we need are found in Jesus. There is a law of Christ, by the way. What is the law of Christ again? Law of love, right. And uh, all the revelation we need is found in Jesus. We are complete in him. Paul emphasizes, let no one deceive you, let no one judge you, and let no one rule against you. Stand firm in this truth, because you are complete in Christ as a believer. All you will ever need spiritually is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really all about him, as I like to say. All right, any final thoughts as we wrap up? No? I guess we covered it thoroughly. All right, very good. Thank you all. Hopefully we can get our overhead working for uh, Sunday.